If you have a Bible, let's go to Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. We're Paul's. I told you we're Paul's and James now. Why are y'all like this so shocked? I'm going to just kind of go through some stuff about the coming King Jesus uh, centered around the holiday church calendar that starts during Advent. Advent is the word Adventus in Latin, and then in the Greek, parousia, which means coming. So, in essence, Advent is the meaning of coming or arrival. Now, if you search through the scriptures, you will not find the word Advent in it, but it is a major theme in the Old Testament as they are anticipating the arrival or the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, that's Old Testament. Jesus came. Jesus was born in the manger and he died for our sins, resurrected on the third day. And then he ascended into heaven to now where we are in what we call the second advent, which is us, God's church, waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. So if I were to give you an outline over just the next four weeks, if I can, today we look at this anticipation of King Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. Then we move on to Jesus coming as the baby and then what he did as he established his kingdom on earth before he ascended. And now then, good for us that on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about the second return of Jesus. Since just to itch our eschatology this morning, because some of you have been so eager to talk about the end of things. And so that'll be my Christmas present to you to talk about eschatology on Christmas Eve. Like what better day to come to church than Christmas Eve to hear about some really cool things that are going to take place. Now, we don't know when exactly Advent started to be celebrated, but around 390 AD, there was a council of churches that got together, and they didn't necessarily start this whole idea of Advent, but they were concerned about the general observation of many churches that they needed to begin to refocus a lot on the incarnate Christ, Jesus coming as flesh, God in flesh, and so there's where this idea was birthed that, man, around, we need to really refocus on not just this coming of Christ that he came and this baby in the little town of Bethlehem, but we want to refocus our hearts also in this anticipation that the church ought to have for the second return of Christ. And so that was around 390 AD. That was a really long time ago. Uh, some of you weren't around at that time. Some of you may have been around that time. Uh, but so that's where we, so we started celebrating, redial our hearts back and focus on Christ the King and maybe get a fresh new outlook on this anticipation that we ought to have as we wait for 
the return of Christ. Now, all this started by way of mentioning in the garden, uh, Genesis chapter 3, if you recall, and this was primarily my focus last year around the time of Advent. Many of you weren't here. That this whole sudden uh, prophetic word of a king coming to reconcile all started back in Genesis chapter 3. Now in Genesis chapter 3, you can recall and go read it for yourself on your own time, is we have this perfect harmonization, this unison with man and with God, God dwelling, God walking with Adam, God talking with Adam and Eve, and there's this beautiful thing going in the garden, but then comes the slimy serpent, and he comes into the garden, and he's like, but have you considered this delicious granny apple, uh, granny green, whatever those things called apple whatever it's an apple okay and so granny smith there it is thank you have you considered this and he was like well my goodness i don't think i have and the lie of the serpent was did god really say and is this what he really meant and 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 this is like this sets like this mo of satan and it's just one method that satan wants you to believe did god really say now it got eve in this predicament and then it gets to Adam into this greater predicament to where all of this lushness and grandiose time with the Lord was broken. And then we insert the dilemma of mankind, which is not your spouse, which ain't your mama. The greatest dilemma that we all face on this earth is sin, right? And it ain't your neighbor's sin, and it ain't your spouse's sin, it ain't your kid's sin, although that does, that's pretty large. It is your sin. That's the greatest dilemma that we all face. And so God comes down to Adam and Eve, recognizing them in their shame. They try to clothe themselves. And God looks at Eve and he says to her, the proto-evangelion, which is the first gospel message through you, Eve he will crush the head of the serpent. And so then we have to ask the question, who is he? And from the garden, thousands of years before Jesus Christ will come on this earth, there was set in mankind an anticipation that there will be a Messiah, a king who will crush the head of the serpent and reconcile all things back into himself. And then we get just down a few chapters later, we get Genesis chapter 12. It is the introduction of Abram. The Lord comes to Abram and he says, Abe, it's time to go, man. We've got some work to do and you've got your work cut out for you because through you, Abraham, through your lineage, through your line, I am going to reconcile all the nations. All right? The promise is yes for Abraham and yes for his lineage, but the promise is not exclusively just for Abraham, but he says to him, I will reconcile all the nations back to me. And that poses to us the question, how, right? So we are set with the Abrahamic covenant and promise that we have this anticipation that which was lost in the garden is going to be made right. And then we will be have access directly to Christ again. Now, as you turn to Genesis 22, 
and we're going to get there, and we'll get there right now. This is one of those crazy stories of God. So Abraham's thinking, all right, so now we've got this promise that through my line, I'm, and I failed to mention, Abraham at the time that he gets the covenant is 75 years old, that you at 75 years old, you're going to have a child. Now, if I'm Abraham, I'm running. I'm 41. And if my wife got pregnant, y'all be visiting me in the bin. I don't think I could take another child. Like right now, we are outnumbered. And to add additional child to the mix, it would just go bad. And I can't imagine how ornery I am at the age of 41, how super ornery at the age of 75. I mean, I'd kick that kid every time he looked at me. You know what I'm saying? And so God comes to Abraham. He's like, yo, Abe, I'm going to give you a son through your line. I'm going to reconcile all this thing back. It's going to be perfect. It's an extraordinary plan. And so 20, 25 years later, Abraham's like knocking on 100. He ain't even got a kid yet. And finally the Lord comes to him and says, you will have your son. And at the age of 100, and, and Sarah, they don't even mention her age. They just say she's good as dead. All right? Now you may be old, but are you that old? Okay. They have a son. Now, some 10, 12, 13 years later, God comes to him and he says, Abraham, I, I want you to sacrifice your son. I, I want you to take him up the mountain and I want you to sacrifice his son. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that's mean. That's cruel. You've never had a 13-year-old son. Um, and so, and sorry, Jude, um, but it's just the truth. And so Abraham, he, he takes the wood and he takes the knife and he lays the wood on Isaac. Isaac carries the wood up the mountain. And you got to see this imagery because this is beautiful. He goes up to the mountain carrying the wood to be a sacrifice. You, you see this? This is a foreshadowing event of what's to take place. Abraham's got the knife, and the knife is that of, of which is uh, akin to the sword, that flaming sword that was placed in the garden that ostracized them out of the presence of God. And they take the fire, the sword, which is a symbol of God's wrath. Isaac carries the wood. There was another person that carried wood up a hill that would eventually atone for our sins. And Abraham says, and on the third day, they arose and they went up the mountain. And he looks at his two servants that are with him and he says, we'll be back. We'll be back. He doesn't say, I'll be back. He says, we'll be back. Now, we can't assume that Abraham believed in a resurrection because we have no evidence of a resurrection ever taking place. But Abraham has this faith that if something happens to the boy that God promised me, I know that God is faithful and will bring him back to me. And so he, he takes his son, and as they're walking up, one of the funniest lines throughout Scripture, Abraham, uh, Isaac looks at his dad, and he's like, hey, dad, I got the wood, and I see you got the knife. Where's the lamb? Right? Could you imagine? That kid is like, this is sketchy, father. Like, I know you old, and maybe you're losing a little bit, but this is not right. And so Abraham lays him on the altar, and he lifts up the knife, and as he is about to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord comes, and he stops him, and he sees over in the distance, in the thistles, in the bushes, God provided a ram for him. 
And then God comes and the word of the Lord comes to Abraham. And he says this in verse 20, in verse 15 or verse 16. By myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and I've not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring at the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, Abraham, shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my command. Now, God's promise renews this covenant after he has Isaac. In other words, that the covenant that God makes with Abraham, Abraham can likely get caught in the weeds of this and think, well, this is just about my son. Well, God goes back to him after his son is born and renews that covenant that through your offspring, all of the nations, the whole earth will be blessed. Now, the problem is, is that Abraham does not see the broader picture of the promise come to fruition in his lifetime, does he? Now, Isaac's born, but is Isaac the point? No. The point is not Abraham. The point of the story of Abraham is not him. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob. It's not Joseph. It's not any of those guys. The point is to get you to look a little broader and to get about 35,000 feet in the air and say, scratch yourself on the head and say, something bigger is taking place. God is writing a story and he's writing it through these weird common people. That through these ordinary folk, God is going to reconcile the whole earth. The promise wasn't about Isaac. The promise was about an anticipation to be set in their hearts that a king is coming to retake his throne. Now, we get, we get the whole Old Testament history. I'm going to give you an Old Testament survey uh, course in like 10 minutes, okay? So you get all of this after them. They find themselves in the hands of the wicked, tyrannical leader, Pharaoh. They are growing at rapid number. Pharaoh rightfully feels like he is threatened by all of these Hebrews, and so he enslaves them. And so you get four or 500 years later, okay? Four or 500 years later, God uses another uncommon guy named Moses to get the guys, the, the family, out of slavery. Now, they get out of slavery. All right, spoiler alert if you ain't never read the Bible. They get out of slavery. They roam around because, you know, that's what you do when you complain and moan and groan. You're going to roam around in your wilderness. And so, finally, they reach the promised land, and then they see these nations, the nations have kings. Well, why don't we have a king? Right? Isn't that the question that you must be asking yourself right after you get led out of slavery and you've been wandering in a wilderness for 40 years? You finally reach the land God's promised you. And the first question that you start uh, questioning everybody else in the camp is, well, geez, we don't have a king. They got a king. And God's like, okay, all right, have it your way. 
He gives them the king, but he doesn't give them the king they want. They, he gives them the king they deserve, and his name is Saul. Saul ain't the right guy. In fact, he goes a little cuckoo. Now, God does some really neat things in this uh, kingdom of Israel, brings about the Davidic kingdom, which is a time of flourishing. And then you get a few additional kings after that, but rapidly the story of Israel unfolds into chaos, into exile, into complaining, and into then where we get the prophets come onto the scene and they start rebuking the people and they start telling the people, you better repent. And they begin to remind them of, remember what God told Abraham that, that through his line, aren't you through that line, Israel? That he's going to reconcile all things back? You, you read it to yourself on the screen as we read Isaiah, one of the most beautiful prophetic utterances of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 9, verse 1 through 7. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as, with, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Listen to this. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for unto us a child is born for unto us a savior is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and the name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Did you catch that? I know it was a lot of Bible reading, but did you understand what I just read? There will be a king, and upon his arrival, he will establish his kingdom, and his kingdom doesn't have an expiration date. We have been wrestling through David, Solomon, Saul, all of the, and then the wicked kings. But there's coming a day when the king of kings is going to set up shop on his throne, and there will be no end. Now, this is 400 years, no, sorry, 700 years before the establishment of his kingdom. So you got to feel the weight of these people who have for thousands of years keep hearing about a promised savior, a promised king who is going to establish his kingdom rule. 
Now, it makes you want to just slap yourself next time you complain about something. Right? Well, you know, I just thought God would have done this already. Yeah, but has it been 2,000 years? No. Yeah, I've been waiting God to deliver my, my family. I've been waiting on God to do this. I've been, I've been waiting on God for all this time. Perhaps a bit of dose of perspective can help you. They're waiting for thousands of years. They're in captivity. And this is insane. That the writer Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, would come to them at a time uh, when, when Tiglath-Pileser III would besiege Damascus. And would run rampart on the people. Bring them in captivity. But Isaiah says there's a day coming when a king will establish his throne. Now I have some questions that I'll get back to that on from Isaiah. And then you get people like Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. You've, you've likely heard him referenced as this. And in chapter 33 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. What was that promise? That all the nations would be brought back under the rule and authority of a king. So anticipation continues to build. Now in Jeremiah's time, this is an, a horrid time to be a part of the Hebrew lineage. In fact, Calvin says, as they were then exposed to slaughter, the children of God saw thousands of deaths so that it could not be but that terror almost drove them to despair. And in their exile, they saw that they were far removed from their own country without any hope of a return. That's just beautiful how Calvin summarizes this time. And then, and then you get to the last part of the Old Testament. And then Malachi says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And then 400 years, the word of the Lord is silent. And then, out in modern day Enoch, all right? I ain't hating on you if you live in Enoch, okay? Bethlehem, the slums of Jerusalem. Matthew records it in his gospel and his genealogy. And, and when Matthew says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Isn't, isn't that fascinating? Matthew is saying, listen, the long-awaited king, he's here. Now, if I go back to Isaiah for just a second by way of passing, Jesus arrives and he sets up his dominion and his throne. And notice what the prophet said, that of his kingdom, of his government, there will be no end. He's saying, for unto us a child is born. All right, it's pretty clear. Jesus the birth of Christ, God in flesh comes and he establishes his, his kingdom. All right, and when he ascends, he says some pretty cool words. He says, all the authority 
on heaven and on earth has been given unto me. What does that tell us? That Jesus is ruling and reigning now. All right, this isn't some future anticipated thing that we are waiting for. Yes, we are waiting for the consummation where Jesus would make all things right. But this is a reality that we get to live in right now because Christ the King is ruling. His government knows no end. The United States government will come to an end one day. The CCP will come to an end one day. Rome collapsed. May have taken 1,500 years, but it collapsed. Governments will come and they will go. But there is one government that has been established now that will never end. And so all these prophets, which started back in Genesis, God is going to reconcile the whole earth back to himself. Jesus comes on the scene and he fulfills that promise that he made. Now, if, if there's any application in that, it's that you can trust God. Now, <laughs> I'd caveat that with, um, you know, God doesn't necessarily operate on my time. All right, he's more like, he operates like a woman on time. You know what I'm saying? Like they just laid and, you know, I'm not a misogynist. Um, but I'm just basing things off of my own relationship with my wife, okay? It's my, it's my own um, experience. But listen, God operates slow. He doesn't operate by time, okay? God is not confined by time. And some of you are like, well, the, the clock's ticking, God. Like, when are you going to move? And I'm quite sure God's up in the heaven like, time? You think I'm confined by time? If God were confined by time, then he wouldn't be God. Time then would be God. And some of us are wrestling and thinking, God, will you move in this situation? Will you save my family? Will you not redeem? Will you not be good on your promise of delivering? And I would just venture to press and say, perhaps we need a dose of perspective again. And think through how people waited for a promise for thousands of years. But the good news in that is that God made good on his promise. Advent, if I were to just draw this back together, if I may, is a season of waiting. We're, we're waiting. We're anticipating something. We're waiting on the king where, where, where all of this, no more sin, no more death. We're, we're in Revelation chapter 21, it says, where no more tear. In fact, the tears will be wiped from their eyes. No more sea, no more suffering. That's what we're waiting for. It, it is my prayer that not during the season of Advent that we would be better as believers in the process of waiting. Waiting with anticipation. Waiting with joy. Waiting with hope. Waiting that we know that this isn't it. 
But there will be a day when the new heavens and the new earth will be established and we will reign with Christ forever for all of eternity. Now, the whole, the whole thing about this is waiting, right? That's the problem. In fact, I would say that that's the worst four-letter word that you could ever say. Wait. Just wait. Nobody likes to wait. I mean, you just, you, 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 you go to the DMV and you got to do what? Wait till your number's called three years later, right? You, you are, we are constantly in a season of waiting. Maybe we're waiting on lab results. Maybe we're waiting in traffic. That'll really test your salvation. Maybe we're waiting for an apology that will never come. Maybe we are waiting for our, uh, our family to be brought back together. We're all in a season of waiting, but I would suggest that waiting shapes us. Waiting grows us. You can either grow bitter. You can grow in your lamenting to God. You can grow and let, let that waiting allow those resentments to fester. Causing you to be paralyzed with the fear of the unknown. Or we can wait. Knowing and we can trust God who is faithful to make good on his promises. And what took quite some time, and that's an understatement, for God to make good on a promise. We have to know that we can trust God in his faithfulness. That he will make good on his promises for us. And the word came to Abraham and he says, all nations will be blessed. And the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah and he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and he says, the Lord of righteousness will come. And the word of the Lord comes to Malachi and he says, behold, the days are coming. And the word of the Lord became flesh and dwelt among us. And he set up his kingdom for all. So, you know, I, I can say if you're a believer, the wait is actually really over for us. Of course, we are still longing, but he's here now with us. It's, it's, I, I thought about the hymn of Charles Wesley. For though... We know that Christ goes with us and before us every day. We long for the day when we are with them. In his fullness and glory, he will bring. We long for a new heaven and a new earth. And as we long for him, may we not grow weary in our waiting, but grow in our anticipation of a faithful God who will make good on his promise. <laughs>